Welcome. We, we need some Rod Stewart because the sermon's going in some different directions. <clears throat> I will say we are closing our Making Sense of the Bible uh, series on the uh, topic of uh, sexuality and human relationships. So we are talking about some pretty heavy issues. Uh, hopefully we end up where we started. Um, and we're all loving each other. Yes, well, well we might need it. So, um, but I, I, you know, we, we talk about these things and we need to talk about these things because our world is talking about them if we are not. And certainly the Bible says some things and we need to be able to talk about it. We need to be able to ask some questions. So let's have a word of prayer and uh, center ourselves now to hear these and so many other issues God puts before us. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to gather together tonight, this wonderful time of fellowship, discipleship, this wonderful time of encouragement and inspiration. We ask that you truly bless us tonight. Work within us your grace, your love, your mercy, that we may truly be your people for this world in all times. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Our, our key scripture today, we're going to bring up several, but our key scripture today comes from Galatians. Uh, that's in the New Testament. We're working with our confirmands on kind of some basic Bible stuff today. It's always good. So if you don't feel like you know what you're, what's in your Bible, that's, that's okay. We uh, all need to start somewhere. Galatians is in the New Testament. It's one of the letters from the Apostle Paul to church in Galatia, right? It's a region. It's not just a church, one church, but a whole group of churches. And uh, chapter 3, verses 28, that's all we're going to do. It's going to be on the screen. You can get it up in your Bibles or Bible apps. Beautiful language here. There is neither Greek nor Jew. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. Beautiful. Hold on to that and let's think about that as we talk about some of these very difficult issues and complex issues. How many of you, by a show of round of applause, I don't know what you want to do. How many of you were given a manual when you moved out of your parents' home? Uh, a guidebook for how to live life. Or on the first day of your job, maybe you got an employee handbook, but where you handed a book that said step-by-step, step, this is what you should do. Or first day of high school, or first day of college. Or your first day of retirement. That one, maybe that, the first day and the second day, then you need some little help, right? You sleep most of the first day, I hope. Try to make up as much as you can. It's my plan, I'm just thinking forward. What about Parenting. Anybody given an instruction manual with their children? <laughs> yeah, does, does anybody have one that they could share with the group? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, we would we happily make copies if anybody's got one of those. Our children are also different. Alex was 20 months old when he came to live with us. It's funny now because Anthony just turned 20 months old. And 
when Alex came to live with us, we had no children. I mean, we were working with Celine, of course, but she didn't live with us. And I mean, we had nieces and nephews, but we weren't prepared. We weren't prepared for Tuesday to have a 20-month-old come and live with us on Wednesday. And each of our children has been different, and each of our children takes unique parenting skills and unique attention, and I'm sure all of your children, grandchildren, nephews, and nieces are the same, that, that they each take a different level of care. As a grandparent, I think that's a different kind of care. As an aunt or an uncle, boy, that was a lot more fun. <laughs> right? <laughs> Being grandparent, that's a lot more fun sometimes. But I think Alex, poor Alex, 20 months of his life, we have no idea. So not only didn't he come with an instruction manual, but there's a whole period of his life that we just don't know. Don't know anything about. So it's like we're starting with a deficit. When we think about the Bible, we sometimes think that it's this manual for knowing how to be Christian, like it's our instruction book but it doesn't come with any instructions on how to use it. It doesn't come with a, oh, by the way, some of our Bibles may have little things in the beginning, but you know, if you just take the Bible as it is, it doesn't come with like a chapter one, how to read me, chapter two, how to interpret. In fact, if we take the Bible and look at it, we, we realize we don't always know that much about it. It was written over centuries by various different people. It's written in languages most of us don't even read. It's written, and we don't even have the original copies. So we don't know what the first authors who penned it actually may have said. We believe that it's inspired by God, but it was penned, it was written by humans. But there's no guidebook to say, well, you know, the book of Galatians was 50% God and 50% Paul or 75% God and 25%, I don't do the math in my head, Paul, right? Yet, sometimes we approach issues with seemingly crystal clear vision on what the Bible says. This complex book, this complex library, this complex resource that we don't always understand, yet there are some things that we approach in our life so crystal clear. Well, the Bible says it, I believe it. The Bible says it, I must be right, you must be wrong. Sometimes we think we have all the answers, but I think often when we're talking about humans, human relationships, sexuality, we need to ask a few more questions. Before I say anything else, that's my ultimate goal tonight, is not to convert you to a way of thinking, but to challenge you to ask more questions. That's all I want to do. I think we, we need to continue to do that in our world in many different ways. Ask more questions. Dig deeper. So let's start with, with not the big issue, we'll get to that. Let's start with some other issues that are big and certainly, certainly pretty, pretty have been certainly huge over the, the years. Um, how many of you are involved with a passionate debate over the issue of slavery? Maybe on Facebook, social media, maybe you go to rallies. Right? Anybody? Uh, anybody pro-slavery, anti-slavery? I mean, anybody pro-slavery? You probably wouldn't raise your hands if you are, Right? right? I am guessing 99.9% .9 of us, there's always a 
couple are against slavery. Slavery's wrong, right? We can agree on that. Slavery's wrong. God thinks slavery's wrong, right? Wouldn't you think? I mean, I mean, really, I mean, I, I, I kind of hear Jesus singing that first song, right? By Rod Stewart. Have I told you lately that I loved you? I mean, isn't that the kind of thing Jesus says? So Jesus can't be pro-slavery. One of the reasons I'm so passionate about working with our at-risk youth in our region is because many of our young people, they're at risk of being involved in many things, including not just gun violence and drugs, but including modern-day slavery, which we call human trafficking. That's a real problem in our world. I don't think anybody's standing up, well, you know, I'm pro that. No, right? Except the slavers, I guess. But most of us, rational, wonderful human beings, we would say, no, that's ridiculous, that's wrong. Yet, the Bible is not anti-slavery. There are over 300 passages in the Bible that reference slavery. Two of them speak against it. The one we read earlier today from Galatians, there is neither slave nor free. Beautiful, beautiful language. And then Paul then says and expects slaves to then obey their masters to stay in slavery. But he says that. It's beautiful. And then there's another passage that condemns along with a laundry list of other kind of crimes, kidnapping someone and selling them into slavery. Well, that seems like a no-brainer, right? You shouldn't do that. So two passages but there are 324 passages in scripture which either aren't negative against slavery some of them regulate slavery they actually give you laws for how to own slaves how to be a slave owner and some of them even seem to be telling us that god ordained slavery that some people are meant to be slaves there are some biblical, <laughs> biblical apologists, those are people that argue for certain things, that would say biblical slavery doesn't even compare to the brutal slavery that our African-American brothers and sisters went through in America. They would say biblical slavery is more like indentured servitude, that slaves were taken care of, that they were paid, that they were even thought higher than servants, which may be true in some cases. But Exodus... You know, this is, this is Exodus. This is the same book where the Israelites who were in slavery, they become free. Exodus is the beginning of the law. We get the Ten Commandments and some of the other 613 laws. And, and here's one of the laws in Exodus 21, verse 20. When a slave owner hits a male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies immediately, the owner should be punished. But if the slave gets up after a day or two, the slave owner shouldn't be punished because the slave is the owner's property. That doesn't sound very nice to me. That doesn't sound like the good slavery. I'm quoting quotes those people who are listening online. Air quotes. It's hard to hear air quotes. I'll try to do it louder next time. But it's okay if I beat my slave viciously. Man, as long as they get up in a few days and they can go back to work, it's cool. 
Is that God's timeless will? Was that God's timeless will? Did that come from the mouth, the word of God, who said, I came to set you free? Came that you have life and have it abundantly. Or is this the understanding of life, relationships, and God people of that time and place have? What about the issue of women? Genesis chapter 1. Oh, I love Genesis chapter 1. Have I said that? I love Genesis chapter 1 because nothing goes wrong in Genesis chapter 1. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful love, love song, you know? I love love songs. I was just telling someone this week, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but Rod Stewart made me think about it. Talking about first albums, and I remember my first, uh, my first single I bought was Richard Marks, right here waiting for you. Yes, I am younger than some of you. I love love songs. And, and so Genesis chapter 1 says, God created humans, male and female. He created them in the image of God. They were created. Beautiful. There's no one's better than the other. There's both. Both are created. Both are equal. Both are in the image of God. Well, then you get to Genesis chapter 2 and things start falling apart. Genesis chapter 3, God declares your desire to women after the fall. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Some men think this way. A football player recently comes to mind. Right? Right? This is a reality, unfortunately, still in our world. But a lot of men, I think a far greater number of men, feel that their wives aren't less than them, their wives aren't their property, but their wives are partners like God intended. That they are valued, that they're not servants, they're not property. For many years, churches, including ours, have ordained women and and lifted up that wonderful ordination of women. But many churches don't. The Roman Catholic Church still says women cannot serve the church as a priest. Pope John Paul II, you know, good pope, claimed that this was the case because Jesus only chose men as his disciples. And so that's the law. That's the rule of doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church. Many conservative Christians hold that women cannot serve because of passages from the Apostle Paul. My mother, not a big fan of the Apostle Paul. You ever want to talk to her about it? It's not her favorite books of the Bible. Many African-American friends of mine would say that about some of the passages in Paul as well. As in all of the churches, this is from 1 Corinthians, women should be silent, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. And he goes on to tell them, well, if they have a question, they should ask their husbands later on. I don't preach from that one often. Um, Paul affirms this in 1 Timothy and claims it's so because Eve was deceived by the serpent in the garden, not Adam. Well, he was standing right there, so I don't know what the issue was, but, right? (laughs) He probably wasn't paying attention. After the fall, we read that women will suffer through childbirth. We read that women are worth half of what men are worth. We read all these wonderful genealogies and numbers and throughout the Old Testament where women aren't mentioned. What was Noah's wife's name? We don't know. It's not in there. 
It's not recorded. Women were considered property. They're given over to be raped and violated in terrible waves in several stories. As I said, women are often treated like this today. But is that God's timeless will? Going back to this wonderful verse from Galatians, Paul says, there's no male or female in Christ. We are one. Jesus Christ revealed himself to women. Women who most people ignored. That woman at the well who everyone just said was this or that or people talked about she was so embarrassed she went by herself in the hottest part of the day to get water jesus sat with her his his disciples didn't even want to but he sat and he talked with her and he revealed himself to her not just jesus but that he was god jesus made room at his table for women and men who were desperate for a relationship with god jesus offered forgiveness to women and men in society who had been put down. Jesus brought us back to the garden on the day of resurrection, and he revealed himself first to Mary Magdalene. Now we come to the issue of human sexuality. I've actually heard it said that some wish we would live in a world where biblical sexuality was the norm. Really? Not sure that you've read the Bible. I think most people say we have an equal say in our sexuality, that men's rights aren't greater than women's rights. But in many parts of the Bible, men seem to have a greater say in sexual rights than women. For example, I don't think anybody here would stand up in defense of rape. I think along with child abuse, rape is one of the worst things you can do to someone and still have them be alive. Yet, we read in Deuteronomy, If a man meets up with a young woman who is a virgin and not engaged, there's a different law for if she is engaged, grabs her and has sex with her, and they are caught in the act, the man who had sex with her must give 50 silver shekels to the young woman's father. She will then become his wife because he had humiliated her. He is never allowed to divorce her. Deuteronomy 22, 28 and 29 so rape is wrong but if you pay your father 50 cents and marry her no big deal and, and then I, I after i wrote this I, uh, I i just realized and then it said and they are caught in the act so there's no like next morning you know coming for help you know that didn't happen so, if, you know, if you get away with it, then great. But if you're caught in the act, because, I mean, seriously, what woman wouldn't want to live forever with the man who raped her in the street, right? It's a good life. Is that God's timeless will? Or is that a situational understanding of a people in a time and a place very different from today? Some of us are offended. You know, there's some reality shows about uh, uh, women who, who are, are multiple wives, or like sister wives and things like that, right? And, and we see those and we're offended by it. That's just ridiculous. Yet there's plenty of polygamy in the Bible. Solomon, King Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
He, he wasn't real wise either, I don't think. So what is it? What is it? Was that God's will? Was that the timeless truth the Word of God is trying to express to us over the generations? Most of us would say, that's not God's timeless will. God does not endorse slavery in any form. God does not think women are less than men for some reason. God does not place a man's sexual needs over the needs and sexuality of women. So we come to a final topic. Topic that many Christians think God is very clear about. That is God's will, and that is that homosexual relationships are wrong. They're not acceptable. Now, I've preached on this before, and unlike slavery, which has 326 passages, there are only six passages that speak about homosexuality at all. I'll tell you what they are for reference. Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Leviticus 18, 22 and 21, chapter 20, verse 1, which talks about when a man uh, lays with a man as a, ma- a woman, it's an abomination. Abomination, that sounds bad. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And 1 Corinthians 6, chapter, or verse, chapter 6, verse 9, 10. And 1 Timothy 1, chapter 10. And both of those talk about temple prostitution. You might also consider Romans uh, chapter 1, 2, because it talks about male and female relationships. And then there's a passage in Joshua 19. Remember, we talked a lot about Joshua couple weeks ago when we were talking about violence in the bible uh which talks about uh male on male rape so at most there's eight generally we consider there being six and fyi joshua's kind of a terrible book i'm just coming to that conclusion this month yeah not a there's a lot of bad stuff going on in joshua i'm just gonna stick to the veggie tales version um it's much much better in my mind um than, than what actually goes on in there So there's a lot of questions to ask with these six verses. Uh, When Moses, for example, called male same-sex relationships an abomination, was he talking about loving, committed relationships? Now, even if he was, eating shrimp is an abomination. Bacon cheeseburger, abomination. Poly cotton blend, abomination. Right? That language is used in those laws as well. We no longer are held to those things in Christ. Now, was Paul in chapter 1 of Romans talking about loving same-sex relationships or the misuse of sex that Greeks were notorious for? It was perfectly acceptable in Greek culture for a uh, powerful man to pretty much have sex with anyone that was underneath him. Students, servants, slaves, women, children. It didn't matter. Greeks were notorious for that. Read Plato and Socrates sometimes. They'll give you nightmares. Take that in college philosophy like I did. So we can deconstruct those six verses. We can look into them. We can talk about the times and the places. Uh, And you can go online and you can read arguments for them, arguments against them, and we fight about it and that's okay. But I'm not sure that we have to even deconstruct those verses. If there's one thing I want you to take away from this entire six weeks on making sense of the Bible, it is that Jesus Christ is the word of God by which all other words are measured. 
That's the only thing that you take away perfect. Jesus Christ is the word of God by which all other words are measured. Because he is the one we worship. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the living word of God. His name is Jesus Christ. Now, in this case, Jesus doesn't speak on it. Jesus doesn't say a darn thing about homosexuality. He does speak about marriage, often negatively, especially when it comes to how men treated women in instances of divorce. It's very specific on that. Because men could divorce women for all kinds of reasons, and then they were just left on the streets, poor, downtrodden. He was pretty clear about what he thought about that. Now, as we've seen there are plenty of passages in the Bible that we should wrestle with. Last week we focused, or two weeks ago, we focused on violence in the Bible. Today I lifted up passages about slavery, the treatment of women, human sexuality. Most of us say those do not reflect God's will. So let's assume for a second Paul and Moses were condemning all LGBTQ relationships, period, that there's no no deconstructing, there's no arguing against them that they did 100%. Maybe their position does not reflect the timeless will of God. Maybe their position reflected God's will in a particular time and space. Or maybe their position reflects the cultural and historical circumstances in which they were written but never reflected God's timeless will. I believe that's true in the cases about slavery about women in leadership and about how we treat each other in sexual relationships. Now, we still struggle with this issue of homosexuality, and that's okay. I'm not saying you should believe one thing or the other, but I think we should be able to ask the question, is this God's timeless will? We at least need to fall there. I believe Jesus Christ is the ultimate judge, and I believe even though Jesus Christ is the ultimate judge, he said in John 3.17, which I would rather we hang up at sports games and in our house or wherever than John 3.16 some days, because John 3.17 says God didn't send his son into this world to judge it. He came that the world might be saved. That, to me, is a lot more important than John 3.16 because we spend a lot of time condemning other people because we think God died for us and not for them. He didn't come to condemn, he came to save. So I generally have compassion for everyone. And I desire that all people will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I also believe sin leads to death and destruction. And that is why this is a very real struggle. Because some people believe homosexuality is a sin. And if it is a sin, it leads to death and destruction. And so that's a question we need to ask. And that's a good debate. That is a good struggle, a good reason to ask this. But the closer I get to Christ, the more I learn about the Bible, the more I struggle with Scripture, and the more I ask, is this God's timeless will, the less clear it has become. The less clear it's become. And the reason is because the older I beget, the, the more life I live, the more humans I meet. And I have LGBTQ colleagues, pastors, ordained clergy, who are wonderful people. Man, you would sit at their feet and they would speak and you would hear and feel Christ talking to you. 
you would be blessed by being in their presence. I have been blessed by being in their presence. They may pray better than me. They know the Bible better than me. They've studied more than me. They are more devout than me. They impress me with the things they say, with their humility, with their love. And so how can I look at them and say, well, they must be sinners, but I'm not. It's my personal experience. But then I've come across in recent years, not necessarily even Christian men and women, but I've come across many LGBTQ couples as a foster parent who have become foster parents. Now it's 2015. Any gay and lesbian couple can have biological children. If you weren't aware of that, that can happen. It's pretty easy, actually. It's a lot cheaper than adopting, very truthfully. It's possible. It's 2015. But many of them that I have come to know, and Jennifer and I have come to know, have set aside that and not just fostered a few, but have fostered an almost unfathomable number of children who have been abused, who have been neglected, who have special needs. Where many straight couples I know wouldn't dare open their home to a foster child, wouldn't dare take on a child that they knew had special needs. And so I look at them and I say these people with compassion and love, these people who have given their life, have sacrificed so much for others. And I say, are they the sinner? Are they living in sin? It's a question. I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm saying, is that God's timeless will? That those relationships, that those loving same-sex relationships or different relationships than we understand today, that those are bad, but, but all of those relationships that are right but end in abuse and end up with children on the streets or end up with pain and death, that they, they must be right. It's a question. I'm not trying to convince you of anything, very truthfully. I'm trying to challenge you to ask questions. That's all I want to do tonight. I'm not standing up here on a political platform saying you need to believe this or that or the other thing or America's going down the tube. I'm saying maybe we need to ask more questions. Maybe it's not that clear. We need to say, is this about everything? Is this God's timeless will? Or does this reflect the humanity of Scripture, which is a beautiful and wonderful gift? But I think there are some cases that the humanity comes out a little bit more than God's will. I bring you my interpretation. I'm not always right. I bring you my study of the Bible. I have all kinds of good degrees and stuff, and I've studied it my entire life. But I I bring you that, and I bring you the tradition of the church, and I bring you my personal experience, and I encourage you to share your own and to disagree with me and, and to call me things on Facebook but I want you to ask the question. And I hope even if we disagree that we can love each other, that we can walk hand in hand doing God's work, doing Christ's work, doing the work of the church, even if we're not sure, even if we disagree, even if we're on different political parties or or anything else. Because ultimately the word of God, Jesus Christ, loved us so much. He came into the midst of this very confusing world, this world of suffering and pain and anger. And He lived and He died and He rose again, not just for us, but for all people. Amen.
Ask questions. A lot of us just believe things we hear, and I don't want you to believe anything that I say over anything anybody else says. I do want you to ask questions. Read it for yourself. And, and again, that's another thing I want you to take away from this entire series. Open your Bible. You know, if you couldn't copy down those verses fast enough, I'll give them to you. I'm not hiding it from you. I'll give you all 326 verses on slavery, too. Might take a little bit longer. If you come out with slavery as God's will, then hallelujah. Let's figure out something to do with that. I don't think we'll probably come along in that, but. Let's respond now to continue to challenge ourselves because Christ came for all people and so we are to serve all people by sharing uh, the social creed that we have been sharing uh, for the last several weeks uh, as we do it uh, in unison together. Or maybe. There we go. I believe I'll read what's in italic and you will read what's in bold. Again, this is the social creed of the United Methodist Church challenging us to be in ministry in our world. We believe in God, creator of the world, and in Jesus Christ, the redeemer of creation. We believe in the Holy Spirit, through whom we acknowledge God's gifts, and we repent of our sin in misusing these gifts to idolatrous ends. We affirm the natural world as God's handiwork and dedicate ourselves to its preservation enhancement, and faithful use by humankind. We joyfully receive for ourselves and others the blessings of community, sexuality, marriage, and the family. We commit ourselves to the rights of men, women, children, youth, young adults, the aging, and people with disabilities, to improvement of the quality of life, and to the rights and dignity of all persons. We believe in the right and duty of persons to work for the glory of God and the good of themselves and others in the protection of their welfare in so doing. In the rights of property as a trust from God, collective bargaining and responsible consumption, and in the elimination of economic and social distress. We dedicate ourselves to peace throughout the world, to the rule of justice and law among nations, and to individual freedom for all people of the world. We believe in the present and final triumph of God's word in human affairs and gladly accept our commission to manifest the life of the gospel in the world. Amen.